This week's show is brought to you by Loot Crate, the official sponsor of Enchanted Tiki Talk. Loot Crate is the world's greatest subscription box for geeks, gamers, pop culture, and Disney fans like you. Start your subscription now at www.lootcrate.com slash tiki talk. Vahini mekyoni mana, ladies and gentlemen. No flashbulbs, please. Our performers are temperamental and easily upset. Thank you for your cooperation. Oh, look at all the people. My goodness, you're all staring at us. We better start the show rolling. Wait, wait. We forgot to wake up the glee club. Hey, howdy, hey. And thank you for joining us here on China Tiki Talk. We are your hosts. I'm Sean. I'm Alan. I'm Keith. So grab yourself a Dole Whip, pull up a chair, and enjoy the show. This is episode 70 for the week of February 22nd, 2015. On this week's show, we are excited to speak with a Disney Imagineer whose work you know all too well, just by taking a ride in a doom buggy or a monorail. He was named a Disney legend in 2004. We welcome Bob Gurren to the Tiki Hut. Welcome, Bob. Hey, how are you all doing in the East? Three years, uh, three, no, what, you got three hours, and then you get us, we get a longer sunset than you guys get. Yeah, we don't get, we don't get a sunset here. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of goes away. It's it's light, and then it's dark. There's no sunset. Yep. Oh, well, you've been in Trader Sam's too long. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your, uh, your busy day and um, your margarita. We appreciate you coming on to talk to us. It's really exciting for us. Well, it's easy to do. I do about uh, 50 to 60 um, public appearances, podcasts, live radio, you know, all kinds of stuff that people will want to do. But you remember, we used to have a bunch of legends, and we kind of parcel this out throughout the year. Now I'm stuck with uh, being invited to every single one of these uh, Disney fan club things. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Should we just cut yeah, the conversation short? <laughs> yeah, it's down to no, it's down to the point now where uh, Marty Sklar, because Marty, uh, we used to have quite a few people on a, a Legends panel, and he could ask a lot of questions. And now we're down to where uh, Marty and I will be the live people, and then we'll have uh, a little video clips with uh, you know like Rolly Clump and Alice Davis, and that, you know, that'll kind of uh, fill in uh, the program. We're going to do one in uh, November down in uh, Orlando. I'm going to miss that by a few days. I wish I was going to be able to be there for it. Yeah, we're going to be there the whole week. Uh, we've got uh, not only the D23, we've got uh, the IAPA show to do there. And then, uh, as I mentioned before, we were just were up in the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, did a gig there. And then last Sunday, D23 had me doing a fan anniversary um, down in uh, San Diego all last Sunday. Wow. Cool. So you're, you're all over the place. Yeah, I thought I was going to be retired at age 65, but it is not happening. <laughs> Doesn't work that way when you're a legend, I don't think. Well, and, you know, and then people invite me to things. You know, I make a couple of free Disney uh, cruises on ships, you know, and, you know, I bought a couple of them. And then uh, I just got back uh, a couple of weeks ago from the Mediterranean on the Disney uh, Magic. And, uh, and I did that a couple of days after I got back from South Africa. I was on a safari in Botswana. So, wow. yeah, there's a lot on my plate this year. Wow. <laughs> so retired life is good. Oh, yeah. It's, it's so busy. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, um, yeah, I suppose if, you, if I really was retired, they'd say, what are you going to do, Bob? Oh, I'm going to go fishing and talk to grandchildren, and then uh, right after that, I'll die. And that's what people do. You know, there are right. people that do that don't, they're not mentally uh, busy at something. 
They yeah. die, like 68. Yeah. Right. You know, but here it is, uh, here it is, 83, and the um, calendar just filling up all the time. And I love it. I don't seem to ever wear out. And that's in addition to the, um, uh, you know, I'm a tour guide at Disneyland now. Yes. Yep. I yeah. Yeah, I, I donate my time for fundraising for Ryman Arts and Waltz Bar and stuff like that. People pay as much as $5,000.33 uh, for, for me to show them around the park. And these are APs who already know the entire history of the park. And I say, well, what are you paying all this money, donating this money to Ryman Arts? Well, we want to know something else that the rest of them don't know, and we'll pay for it. Wow. I mean, can you imagine that Disney fans now are so um, so interested and so thorough, they absolutely want to know everything. I had a, had a lady in, uh, I was in Wisconsin last week, and she had flown me back there for a week and uh, paid that I could go to the Oshkosh Air Show, which, you know, I love airplanes. If I put on a program in the basement of her house for 40 of her neighbors, because her house is the largest collection of Disney uh, tchotchkes. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah, there's there's people like that that they they collect everything that's collectible that's, that's small. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, so I get I get a chance to meet some very very interesting people and in all these uh, travel requests. Wow, that's great. Well, you guys sure give me a big pause. I mean, what is? You don't believe what I say? Or oh just... no, we do. It's just it's just <laughs> no, amazing. It's... <laughs> it's great to hear that. We, you know, it's, we're just it's letting you talk. Yeah. yeah. We love it. Must be yeah, nice to get, have yeah, that kind of get, money. That's <laughs> we're shocked. Yeah. To be, <laughs> that kind of money. <laughs> well, yeah, they, but you know, it's okay. They got that money and they want to donate it towards uh, Ryman Arts and uh, Walt Disney's Barn. Well, that, that really helps if people exactly. do that. I, probably, I think I've raised eight, I've raised eighteen thousand dollars in the last year and a half on these um, on these uh, Disneyland tours. Oh wow! Wow, that's, that's, that's great. a great cause. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, of course the real tour guides they give me a funny look. Is you don't you aren't wearing the plaid, you know? Where, where's your uh, that uh, polo stick that you're supposed to wave around <laughs> with the flag on it? Bob Blue doesn't wear plaid. Yeah. yeah, no, it it works out great because um, you know we start in the morning and then by four or five in the afternoon I take them over to watch the five and dime show and which is a lot of a lot of fun if you know what that is and then I said oh look there's a bar across the street oh Club nineteen oh one well yes all right well why it's it's close to four thirty why don't we go in there you know it's um, it's seven thirty Orlando time we can go in there now and of course they say Bob would you, would you like a gertini? Well, yes. <laughs> if you insist, <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> in fact, the uh, as, as you probably read in some of the blogs, the uh, Club 33 just opened. Right. And uh, in fact, tomorrow, uh, Michael Kalkleiser, the president of the Disney, uh, Disney Resort, has taken me to lunch there to kind of show off the club. But I was there oh, about a week and a half ago for one of my first of my seasonal birthday parties. And um, the club is, is absolutely... Uh, Beautiful in there, but on the menu they actually have a Gertini on their uh, printout on the tickets when you order a drink. Yeah. Uh, because well, it's been a joke for years on the internet, and now it's real. So uh, after we had a you know a drink in the new lounge, which is gorgeous, we all gathered. We had uh, ten people in, in the Club 33 dining room, and then the server comes around, uh, Mr. Girl, what would you like? Oh, I have a Gertini. She just looked at me, and I just. It's all right. They have them here. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She came back in about 10 minutes. She says, sir, here's your Gertini. (laughs) I mean, that's how how much fun people have here. That's great. 
You were speaking of Club 33. Did you have anything to do with uh, the design for it? No, not a bit. The um, If you've read some of the uh, competing blogs, uh, there were a lot of negative comments. Actually, if you go back in history and you'll note that Walt always would say, you know, Disneyland will never be finished. Uh, I'm always looking for uh, new ways to do things. A lot of people said, oh, we should not change Club 33 because that was the way Walt wanted it. Well, balderdash. They've redesigned Club 33 in the most exquisite manner. It is just a genuinely gorgeous dining room. Tablecloths are gorgeous. New silverware, new plates, and the best menu I have ever seen on Disney property anywhere. Because wow. uh, Andrew Sutton, you know, who uh, designs everything for Napa he came up with a, um, a menu that's a fixed price. So, you know, it's kind of European-like where it's, a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a fixed price. And it's five or six courses, whether you want the cheese course or not. But it startles people. They say, what? we got to pay, what, $105 for dinner now? Well, in the old a la carte, you, you probably spend $100 anyway. But now, I think the way they do this, it makes Club 33 not just a place to have dinner with your friends. It makes it a very special event evening. Yeah, and I think right. that is a, that's a great move on their part. The menu items are so beautiful, and nobody eats them. They take photographs of them. It's the darnest thing. You know, every, everything's getting cold, you know, and all the cameras are clicking away. <laughs> but, I mean, it's that kind of a design that is so extremely well done. I, I think over time, you'll probably get comments from people who will have a chance to be uh, invited to Club 33 and see what they've really done. And, of course, that will mean that the, some of the negative comments on the blogs will you know, they'll look a little silly and kind of small-minded to criticize something that they haven't had a chance to look at. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It should be, yeah, and, you know, a, Yeah, and of course, the, the, new, of an, the new lounge, they have this new lounge, which is sort of like a um, New Orleans jazz club, you know, with walls that look like brick, you know, old warehouse thing, but very, very elegant. It has a lot of dark blues and light blues, but with these kind of orange lights on the ceiling uh, and, the, and the furniture, the way it's set up. And it's a, it's a very large lounge. It's terrific because people can have a place to have a little drink before dinner. And after dinner, families can go in there and have like it's a living room. You're sitting in there. The families meet one another. Uh, The kids don't go to Club 33. They want to go out in the park. So while the families are eating, you know, the kids are running around the park with somebody else. And then after dinner, everybody gets to join at the uh, new lounge. And it's so uh, so family, so living room feeling there. You know, I've never been to a Club 33 in Disneyland. I don't know anybody who is actually a member there. So hopefully one of these days I'll get a chance to do that. Yeah, I think if you were to go to um, uh, Mice Chat, I think a couple of weeks ago, they ran a bunch of photos. Somebody went in there and uh, did a lot of photographs. So, yeah, if you're curious what it looks like in great detail, um, look it up. They got it in an archive, I think, and they, uh, there's a lot of photos there. It was just shows what a beautiful place it is. So um, how did you get your career started working at Disney? Well, interestingly, I had my heart set on being an aircraft engineer, but my math was bad, so I changed to cars because that's art. Went to Art Center College of Design, got hired at the Ford Motor Company, and within two weeks I could see Detroit sucked, and that I wasn't going to do that for the rest of my life. <laughs> the no, really, yeah. Pay attention. This is going really quick. Uh, I was there a year and a day. I quit, came back to California. Uh, started my own company called R.H. Gurr Industrial Design, and within a year and a half, one of my uh, clients was Wed Enterprises, which was Walt Disney. So I started doing work in the middle of the night and coming over on Saturday mornings, and I think the second Saturday morning, 
uh, Walt said, well, I got a lot more for you to do. And I says, well, okay, I'll just quit my day job because I was helping out an industrial design company and nothing was said. Boy, he just whisked me over to the uh, employment office and signed me up and that was that. 27 years later, they fired me and then I went off went to and created the Gur Design Company. Did you get Did you get all that? Yeah, I got yeah, it. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> we got it. Got <laughs> it. Actually, what happened was Walt was looking for people to work on this brand new project. And he had a lot of people, uh, feelers going out around town. Uh, you know, they need architects, civil engineers, graphic designers, um, you know, a big variety of stuff. And they had picked up uh, six people outside the studio, and they were looking for a car body designer. So I wound up being fulfilling that, that the person they were looking for for a car body designer. And then um, at the same time, all of this in 1954, Walt picked up uh, 11 people out of the animation department of the studio, you know, some animators, uh, background people, music people, and, uh, you know, story writers. So he picked up 11 there. So we had 18 uh, people by uh, the end of 1954. And then, of course, you know, going into 55, uh, you know, they were wet enterprise with just hiring people right and left because there was so much work uh, to be done. And so basically, uh, he put me to work with the Autopia car body and then loaded me up with one job after another all the way till his passing 12 years later. And that job just, just kept on coming until 1981. What was your um, like first impressions of Walt? Funny thing, I, I had never been introduced to him. I kind of wasn't sure what he looked like. And we were on the second Saturday, we were standing out in the back lot and we had this chassis, this little car that... Uh, a designer had uh, built, but he didn't know how to do a body. So, you know, you got guys, they stand around, they put a foot on a tire, and they stand there and kibitz back and forth. And we were discussing this, and this guy walks up, and he, he was kind of unshaven. He had a Roy Rogers uh, little belt, you know, with a silver-painted bullet, wooden bullet, and he had a funny little tie. And uh, I just took him as uh, a father of one of the night guards because he was just just friendly. And then uh, when he took his foot off the tire and walked off, everybody said, okay, see you, Walt. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, that's Walt Disney? <laughs> so I, 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 never, I never was introduced. It was just he was always on the lot, and, uh, and he talked to you. Wow. Just like that. It was as informal as could be. Uh, but, but I think what he did, uh, he had a sixth sense of people and what they could do and then, of course, he had a lot of people inquiring about, you know, do you know somebody that does this? Do you know any people that are good architects or theatrical designers? So there was a lot of, you know, looking around town to see who you could hire. And uh, and that, that, you know, that went on for quite a few years until, you know, Wet Enterprises got up until it had a couple hundred people in it. So it, it was really a very informal thing. It didn't really have what I'd call a structured management. Uh, we hardly ever had meetings. Uh, Walt always walked around almost every day to see what's going on. He'd walk up to some people, you know, let's say work in the model shop or the machine shop or, or the drafting department. He'd walk up and just see what's going on, and then uh, he might have a suggestion. He'd say, you know, this this is looking pretty good, Bobby, but what do you think if? Then he'd ask a little question, you know, what do you think if? And that way, rather than give an order to somebody, he would always be in a position of getting you into a conversation where you're supposed to contribute your ideas. Now, stop and think about that. That is the giant Walt Disney difference. 
Right. We've had a lot of presidents in the company uh, since that issued orders through a lot of management with threats that if you do this wrong, we'll fire you. Well, naturally, nobody wants to contribute an idea in case it bombs out. But the way Walt would ask you for an idea and then get into a discussion about it, uh, let's say it did bomb out, which some of them did bomb out. Well, he wasn't upset. He said, well, okay, well, we'll just find a better way uh, and, and we'll get it fixed. Well, that sends a sign to uh, somebody who just gave up an idea that looked good and then it didn't work and the money's already spent, time's gone, that he didn't kill you. Well, the next time he comes around, he says, uh, say, what do you think? Uh, you were so enthusiastic, give him another idea, this one might really work. So you never had, you were never under the threat of, of, of being fired for something that didn't work. That's, that's a distinct advantage in how you manage people. You have a sense of job security that way, which helps you do your job. You don't have to worry about messing <laughs> something up. That's okay. Bless you. <laughs> Bless you. So tell us about uh, Autopia. Uh, when you designed that, you know, were there specific cards that you were you know, told to kind of put in there, or, or did you get to oh, no. kind of make those choices? Uh, no, no. no, first off, you got to visualize this. In hindsight, I didn't realize it, but at no time did Walt ever come to me on a new project and tell me what he wanted, what it's supposed to look like, and what it's supposed to do. He just says, well, we're getting started on. And he said, well, you know, the Viewliner, the monorail, whatever. Uh, and the Atopia, it was just a case of, well, we got this little car, you know, and we, we need to put a body on it. And so I basically uh, selected and chose all my ideas that ran off the top of my head with no research. I just looked at it and said, well, I know what, I know what we need to do. I know what would look pretty cool. And that's the way it was all that 12 years uh, with Walt, was that uh, he would trust people. You know, he, he's already got you there. He's got you working on stuff. He figures you can contribute and, and be very creative. So he doesn't have to tell you, I want this or I want that. But, of course, if, in the course of development, if it wasn't working, he'd let you know it wasn't working, so we need to keep figuring it out. But I have to say, looking back on, say, Autopia, uh, Antique Cars, Main Street, Omnibus, uh, Viewliner, the Monorail, I just saw in my mind's eye what the thing could be, and I just started in on it, make a couple of drawings, show it to them, and that was that. I mean, that's so different than the way companies work today. They have to have criteria, they have to vote on it, they have to have project managers, they got to get coordinators, everybody's got to buy into it, and they got to budget the thing. Round and round and round, and it turns out there's no champion of an idea because nobody wants to be the champion because if it doesn't work, they're going to kill you for it. Right. Yeah, that's it's work by fear, basically, is what it is. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's work by fear, and uh, you know, all, you know, the whole world's like that now. There's very few companies that are, uh, you know, they're brilliant enough that they see that you know, managing the people and managing creative ideas is such a tender thing. You know, there's a new book by Ed Catmull, who's a co-founder of Pixar. And he's looked at his career and looked back and tried to figure out how did Pixar get so successful. And he's trying to figure out how do you really manage people? How does it really work? He's got a new book out. It's called Creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can buy it on, uh, you know, a hard copy and you can get it on ebooks and stuff. It's a worthwhile read if you want to know what is it like to manage creative people and looking back at the way Walt did it and then how Ed Catmull and John Lasseter kind of automatically did it without really, you know, officially recognizing that's what they were doing. So a place like Pixar is pretty close to um, uh, the way you think and the way you work uh, that Walt did. 
So what started your, your fascination with uh, cars and uh, designing? Oh, that was really easy. I think I was about 18 months old. <laughs> and <laughs> No, really. No, re- re- I have memories that go back in my grandmother's house to a lot of technical stuff. And it was, I was very, very aware of uh, cars. Remember, these are like cars in 1934, stuff like that. Uh, and I was very aware of airplanes because, you know, you hear something, you look up and say, oh, my God, what's that? Oh, it's an airplane. So by the time I was seven or eight, uh, cars and airplanes were a, a gigantic uh, focus for my curiosity. And then luckily, our family had moved in 1934 to a place that was about two blocks away from where Walt Disney Imagineering later moved in 1961 which was at an airport, the Grand Central Air Terminal. And I was in that air terminal all the time when I would, I would escape and get out of the house and get across the main streets and not get hit by a truck or get hit by the steam trains. And I'd go over and I'd uh, go under the fence and I'd crawl around airplanes. So it was always a giant focus. But I always saw cars and airplanes as, yeah, that's the way they are, but what could they be? I always saw things as, I can't wait to grab a pencil and paper and draw my own. And that was... That was by at least the third grade, I remember doing that. And, of course, by junior high, you know, I was just, just drawing hypothetical who knew anything. So I think, you know, I think there's people that Walt hired, you know, like, like Richard Sherman, Richard and Robert, you know. They, all they do is see music and words. They, they, just, they just want to do it all the time. There's people that like architecture. They can see the architecture. They just draw it all the time. So I think I was the same as the rest of those folks, but it just happened to be cars and airplanes. So speaking of cars, now you got to work um, with Rolly Krupp on the, the Car Parts Orchestra. What was that experience like? Well, Rolly is very funny. Uh, he's very diligent about uh, checking into stuff, see if it's going to work before he goes too far with it. And uh, we always got along because he, he was kind of a funky cuckoo guy. I first met him about <laughs> 56. No, really, he's still a, he's still a very, very dear friend, but he had a, a totally fearless look at things. And he came over one day and he said, hey, girl, i got to do a car parts orchestra. And I said, well, I'm working on the Ford Manja Skyway. i got a bunch of car parts book. I just happen to have a um, car parts book on uh, Ford Motor Company parts. You know, the book's about three inches thick, and, of course, it's part numbers and illustrations and so we just sat down, we went through um, the book, you know, which has got technical illustrations, and he just uh, said, oh, I'll copy this and copy that, and he'd sketch up stuff based upon uh, the illustrations in this Ford uh, Motor Company uh, catalog about 1963. Yeah, just as simple as that. He knew about what he wanted, he knew where he could get the answers, and I could drag the book out and show, show him the parts. What were um, the challenges on making the, the monorail, if there were well, first any? first off, First off, everybody asks me, they say, what were your challenges? You know, in all truth and most, I was never challenged once because when an idea would start to show up, I saw so many ways to do it. It was mostly a case of, well, okay, out of these, out of these four or five uh, ways we could do it, what, what do I think is going to be the best one? So I know other people would sit there and say, oh, God, Walt wants us to do this. Oh, my God, I know nothing about it. What am I going to do now? I was never in that spot because the things that Walt would propose were uh, seemed to be instantly doable in so many different ways. But you don't know that at the time when you're doing that. It's only when uh, 60 years later somebody is on a podcast in Orlando and they phone up and say, Say, Bob, what were your challenges? <laughs> well, there weren't any. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I mean that truthfully. See, you had uh, you took Richard Nixon for a ride on the monorail. How you know? What'd you guys talk about? What'd you do on the monorail with Richard Nixon? Walt had the best look on his face, and the eyebrow would go up, and he'd have that smile and that cheery look on his face, like he was a cat. He just ate the biggest canary in the world. He <laughs> he loved to show off stuff he had nobody else had, and uh, you know, like Snow White movie. You know, uh, you know, you have great pride of developing something for the very first time and of course the monorail was the very first monorail in, in, in the western hemisphere and of course early on he invited his friend dick to bring his wife and the two girls and come on out and, and stay at the disneyland hotel and bring some secret service with you uh i'd like you to uh help me dedicate my new monorail you know and of course you know they were old friends you know i said what dear dick come on out. i got a copy of the letter he wrote to the white house dear dick you know it was simple as that. So uh, naturally, uh, Walt's got a got a close friend and uh, wanted to show this thing off to him. So Nixon, of course, was you know with all eyes, you know, seeing stuff that Walt had, uh, you know, along the lines that the other stuff that Nixon had always known that Walt would come up with. So the Monterey was just one more in a line of uh, new stuff that Walt shows up with. What was that uh, opening day like? Um, on Disneyland, was it as chaotic as everybody tells us? Oh yeah, going yeah, you're uh, talking about ni- uh, June 1959 now, but right. we're back we're back up to um, July 17, 1955. Yes, everything that you've ever read and that's been rewritten about uh, is exactly uh, correct. It was a madhouse day. Uh, all knew everything. Temperature was too hot. The asphalt was soft. Um, too much TV cables running all over the place. Security going nuts. People had mimeographed copies of the tickets, and we had twice as many people jump in the fence as had tickets. Wow. So, yeah, you draw up a list of everything that will go wrong on on inauguration of a, a risky venture. It was all there. But right. uh, Walt, Walt got through the day okay. Um, uh, I, I have vivid memories of the stuff that I was assigned to do because I had to get a bunch of Autopia cars off the ride, bring them over to... Uh, Went to the opera house and have them behind a the fence and try to keep them running to stage into the parade at the time that we were running. Oh, we probably had a dozen of them, maybe, uh, trying to keep the engine running and then put people in the cars, go through the parade, go back, put them back on the ride, and then when the TV um, crew came out to show the new ride, right after that, why then, you know, the, the uh, invited guests would go out and start riding the cars. So, yeah, it was an all day thing to get in there early in the morning. All the logistics of a live TV show, which is very chaotic, and then plus a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't working. So by the time I drove back down there early in the morning on the following day, there was a lot of equipment already broken. Oh, and uh, within, yeah, at the end of the week, I had out of 38 or uh, 37 cards, I only had two running. Wow. So it was a very, very black week. That's the way you do it. You try something, it doesn't work. Well, okay, now we're going to figure out what does work, and we, and we grow from there. Taking a step forward, what were your first impressions for the design of the Haunted Mansion? And how did you de- how did you decide on a design for the Doom Buggy? Well, it was it was very simple. The Haunted Mansion project probably was been going on and off for like maybe 10 or 12 years. Oh, it really wasn't a project that just was turned on. It, it was just had always been evolving because, you know, uh, Yale Gracie was up in his room. Uh, Walt had him in a room where he says, Yale, just invent anything you want. Just show us what you got when you got it. So Yale was always coming up with gags. Rolly was, uh, you know, always fussing around with his, I uh, uh, forget the name of it. It was like the Museum of the Weird, stuff like right. that. Uh, and Ken Anderson was laying stuff out. Mark Davis was making sketches. So there was a bunch of people 
just sort of generally doing something every month or so. And we have a lot of it mocked up on the soundstage over at the studio. Around of 65, I think early 65, somewhere in there, uh, I started working on the Monsanto attraction, which was a machine, which I called the Omnimover at that time. And while we were developing the Omnimover for Monsanto, and we set up a little test track at 1401 Flower, while all of a sudden it became very obvious to everybody that we can solve the Haunted Mansion walkthrough problem by making it a ride, and we will use the Monsanto ride. Now, see, history's, history's got it backwards. All, most every company, uh, except Jeff Bam, I think he's got it right, is um, the Haunted Mansion was never going to be a ride. It was always going to be a walkthrough, and it was just in the process of developing other attractions and rides all of a sudden, the company saw that, say, we've got a we've got a ride machine here that uh, this would really work. So, of course, what later people call the um, the doom buggies, that's the same body exactly as the automobile in Monsanto, but nobody remembers it. Wow. Oh, cool. See how, see how much free history you're getting on a Sunday night? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm writing it all down as we speak. Yep. There, there will be a test at the end of the show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, Bob, you've obviously had a hand in creating a lot of, you know, iconic, uh, you know, attractions and, and specifically vehicles, but possibly the most is, I mean, the first tubular steel continuous track roller coaster, i.e. the Matterhorn bobsleds. Tell us about, you know, coming up with that and being the first one to do that. Well, actually, uh, Walt at first brought me pictures of a um, typical bobsled, uh, you know, it's used in Europe, a bobsled ride, and says, well, we're going to do a uh, we're going to do a bobsled ride, and here's what the cars kind of look like, and uh, once you get started on it. So I started to design a little bit of a chassis, and then I did a little bit of work on different kinds of tracks, but none of them looked like they were going to work. In the meantime, Walt had given Aero Development up in Mountain View, California, the task of saying, well, we're going to build a... Uh, we're going to build a Matterhorn. I don't know what it is, but you guys are going to build it. So with that kind of a start, uh, they looked at how long the time it would take. And that was, of course, uh, uh, Ed Morgan and Carl Bacon, which were self-taught designers and fabricators. They looked at the time that it would take to fabricate something. They said, well, you know, black iron pipe, that is really cheap, and uh, we'll invent a, a tube bender. And if we do a tube bender, that's a uh, three-fingered uh, rotatable grabber, well, we can make a uh, we can take a piece of straight pipe and we can twist it into a, a noodle pretzel in any direction. It was just as simple as that. They only figured it out from the standpoint: what do we do to build it the fastest? There was no thought at any time we were inventing the world's first pipe roller coaster. It wasn't until the attraction opened, and then I think uh, I think it was Mitsubishi. I think they they were doing something, but they were quite a ways behind us. Uh, they were, they had come to the same conclusion that say, you know, pipe is cheap, should do it that way. You know, why fuss around with wood? Right. So, yeah, so it, it wound up that the, uh, Matterhorn was the world's first, uh, pipe roller coaster only because it was driven by the, the time it was going to take. Plus the other thing, it's going to be inside a mountain, which means you're not going to pile it up on a bunch of wood and outdoor structures. It's a hundred percent different concept. So uh, they Walt said, okay, well, then uh, you, you draw the course line. You figure it out. We're going to have two rides, and uh, you've got to uh, get it inside Fred Jurger's model. He made a model of this, this tapered mountain. And then we had to have a hole through it for the sky ride. So this was a, a rat's nest of configurations, which I did by hand over a period of about maybe two weeks to try to get anything to fit you know, within those kind of constraints. And then um, Arrow was phoning up every day, saying, girl, when are we going to get the course on? we got to start bending metal. 
And finally, one day, I got enough of the track figured out outside the steel structure. I said, okay, here's the track. Uh, go build it. And it was just simple as that. Is it possible to choose um, a favorite attraction that you have worked on? Oh, that's the easiest question of all. My favorite attraction is my fire engine. Oh, nice. <laughs> on Main Street. Well, yeah. see, I, I, I knew Ward Kimball, you know, the craziest animator. I knew him several years before I ever went to the studio because we were both in the same car club together. And he was a real good friend of, uh, friend of mine that published some of my books when I was 18, 19 years old. So one day Ward uh, said, I need somebody to drive my fire engine in a, in a parade in Temple City. And he had a 1916 American LaFrance, so I was sent over to drive it. I drove it in the parade and had a great time. And thereafter, I wanted a fire engine. If Ward had one, why can't I have one? Well, Ward was rich and I'm not. So anyway, uh, 19, um, uh, yeah, spring of 58, I had a chance when Walt came into my office and I said, you know, we, we, well, you know what we don't have? We don't have a fire engine on Main Street. You know, Walt said something like, yeah, we, oh, yeah, we don't. So uh, he went to the accounting department, and they phoned back and said, well, here's the account number for the new fire engine project. So whoopee, we're going to build a fire engine. So we designed it and uh, built it in the machine shop at the studio, got a moving permit, and I drove it down the Santa Ana Freeway almost all the way to Disneyland. Wow. So it's in, it's in the park, and uh, there since July of 58. And then it arrived. Guess what car Walt wanted to drive every time he was in the park? He grabbed the fire engine and took his friends for a ride. <laughs> I don't so, blame so him. You, yeah, so, I mean, you can see, you know, Ward had one. Oh, I want one. Well, that's mine, and then Walt drives it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just as simple as that. So still today, uh, that little car goes up and down Main Street every number of years. They kind of refurbish it. So it's always, it's always like new all the time. And, Do you ever get uh, to ride it? Oh, I, I mean, love riding it. drive it, I should say. You ever drive it? Oh, no, I don't want to drive it on the street. You know, we got insurance and security issues and stuff like that. Right. right. So, uh, but I, I usually take friends, and, uh, you know, the drivers all know me, and they see me stand at the curb with a bunch of people. So he makes sure our party gets in there, and if there's room, then the regular guests can get in there, too. Right. So it, it's always a, a private thrill to ride up Main Street or back down Main Street on that fire engine. So you knew um, a, a Ub Iwerks. Was he as uh, big a character as everybody says he was? No, uh, Ub was very quiet. Uh, I had a paper out starting about 19, I think, 43, um, in, in areas of the San Fernando Valley where a lot of movie people lived. And he was just uh, one, of, one of my customers. He always had something interesting in his garage or out in the, the street in front of his house. He had two sons, uh, one of which... Um, Soon became a, a very close friend of mine. In fact, his younger son, uh, Dave Iwerks, uh, we, we bummed around with car club and stuff all through uh, junior high and high school. The older brother, uh, Don, uh, he later had uh, Iwerks Entertainment Company, and uh, he hired me to do a lot of engineering for him. So, yeah, the whole Iwerks con connection, uh, you know, went way back to uh, 1943. Worked on um, Spaceship for the 84 Olympics. Um, was that a fun experience for you? Oh, after I got fired from Disney, a whole bunch of new jobs came along that were even way more fun than the, than the Disney stuff. And uh, that fire, that uh, flying saucer gag was, uh, that, I loved doing that one because it was a big, risky thing to do. Because when you design an attraction, you're going to have an opening day and then it's going to run 16 hours a day for months on end and last for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. But you got to remember a gag 
like a flying saucer in the closing ceremonies of the Olympics in Los Angeles is being broadcast uh, live video around the world, and there's a 15-minute hole in the script, and you're going to go right through that 15-minute hole. One time only, and you're not going to miss. So you can imagine the timing and the risk involved in a thing like that. And what makes it worse, it's going to be in the air. Okay, it's going to be by helicopter. Helicopters can crash. Helicopters that do what what we call long-line lift, uh, uh, very serious risks with it. So you have to have cleared areas underneath it. Uh, And the only people underneath the helicopter to hook the darn thing up was me. You know, it's just, well, you just have to do it. We can't pay other people to take that hazard because the pilot is going to hope the helicopter engine doesn't stop, and I'm going to be underneath there hooking the cable up, hoping the helicopter engine also doesn't stop. So, yeah, you just look the other way at the risk and say, well, if, uh, if I got everything right, it's going to work. And, of course, it did. What else did you work on after? You said a lot of uh, opportunities came oh, up. Well, well, you guys know. You know, I designed the Conan Swords and Sorcery Show, a serpent, 24-foot fire-breathing serpent. I designed their 30-foot-tall animated King Kong for Hollywood. I did two uh, King Kongs for Universal Studios. Uh, Las Vegas did the PFX uh, giant show set with the dragons. I did a um, big sinking ship project for Treasure Island. Whole bunch of stuff was so interesting to do. Did you catch any grief when you started uh, to work for Universal from uh, the Disney community? No, because a lot of the good people at uh, WED uh, had been sort of run out of the place, and they all went over and worked for Universal. <laughs> <laughs> the mass exodus. Oh, Everybody yeah, work, work at, working at Universal was like working with our old gang. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Did you do Universal on both coasts, or did you do mostly Universal uh, Hollywood? Yeah, no, or? both. both, both no, I, I worked jobs on both coasts, yeah. They were, they were a lot of fun to work with. I really like working for them. You know, and of course, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg watched this build the, uh, the King Kong at Universal Hollywood, and then in the later years, he phoned me up, and he says, I got I just bought a book about a historic dinosaur in a movie, and I want you to come help me figure out how, to, how am I going to do this gigantic hydraulic Tyrannosaurus Rex. So I worked for him for about five months, helped him figure that thing out. And then, of course, later years, uh, Sony TriStar phoned up and said, uh, we got Patrick Katopoulos doing uh, uh, doing our Godzilla movie. And uh, so I went out and I I engineered the whole darn Godzilla. So you, you, you did work on the T-Rex for Jurassic Park? No, I did, I did what's called uh, preliminary planning in order to figure out what do they need to do. And then we wound up that um, Stan Winston's studio got the job. And yeah. uh, so I made sure Stan hired a couple of guys that helped me build King Kong. So the stuff we learned about giant creatures, you know, that knowledge could go over and help Spielberg by having uh, helped Stan Winston build it for him. Yeah, I, thought, I thought Winston had done it, but I, I didn't realize you had had any kind of like preliminary uh, input on that. That's that is you just taught me something. That's pretty awesome because, I mean, that's the, the, those well, uh, that's animatronics. The way you're, that's the only way you're going to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> People right. asking questions, and then they yeah. all go, "I didn't know that." Yeah, I, I didn't know that. I thought Winston. Was, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> did it all? No, it was, it was fun. All those years of um, you do stuff, and then uh, your stuff works, and then uh, you know, word of mouth says, "Hey, you want a crazy job uh, done right? Hey, call this guy. He'll, he'll come out and do it." <laughs> you know, and then I, then I I know people that I would trust with you know further engineering, especially fabrication. But it was always, I thought it was always kind of neat because basically I worked alone. Uh, like I was the head guy of the configuration of anything, and I never really had to explain it to anybody. We just sort of started in, 
and people would be gathered along with the whole project. Oh, I'd say Treasure Island. That involves like about 22 different trades, you know, fire, lighting, audio, stunt, civil, concrete, building code, all that stuff. And they would follow the configuration of the, of the whole attraction. And I'd be the guy uh, with configuring the whole thing from the get-go. Uh, I, I just sort of automatically did it. I never, ever recall being challenged. And I think over time, if you, if you do your stuff right and it's successful, you get a reputation where after a while, um, somebody's got a gig they want you to do. And then they say, hey, girl, we got a new gig. And then my first question would be, who else is on it? And if it's B team, if it's B team people, I says, well, I'm I'm busy. I'm going on vacation, which is a polite way of saying your job sucks and I'm not going to do it. Right. So see that? Well, that no, that puts you in a position of you only pick winners, and then the other people who are winners in their trade, they come along with you. Right. Yeah. In in Hollywood, uh, the movie industry, you're only good at your last gig. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah you do one 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 bad gig, and they won't call again. What, what do you do for me late? Uh, what are you doing for me right now? Not what did you do for me last week? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> do you have yeah, any ride vehicles yeah. in your home? Uh, no, I used to have uh, you know some interesting cars, and um, you know I had a Rolls Royce, old Rolls Royce for thirty five years, and uh, and uh, I had a couple of Porsches. All of, all the Porsches I had sucked. They were rotten cars from the get go. Uh. And uh, but I had a, I had a Ferrari Lusso. If you know what a Ferrari Lusso is, it's a pretty car. I, I sold that for twice what I paid for it, and then I bought an airplane, which I had for 25 years. Wow. Nice. And I flew, I flew the airplane way more than I ever would have driven the Ferrari. But if I took <laughs> the Ferrari, you know, I, sold, I paid 26 for it, sold it for 54 and then uh, it, it went up to $400,000 later. Wow. Oh, so what yeah. am I going to do? I'm not going to sit there and count money. I'm going to go fly my airplane. <laughs> right. Right. Actually, it was, you... it was a motor glider, a great big German motor glider. If you guys know what that is, it's like a airplane with a motor in the front, oh, okay. composite, uh, you know, 57-foot wing, sliding canopy, stick, retractable gear, all that stuff. And you, you take off Burbank Airport, and you drive up the mountains. When you get to the mountains, turn the engine off. Right. There's rising air currents. Up you go. You don't need a motor. Wow. Was it, Nobody ever mentioned... understood that. They say, girl, you do what on weekends? <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I, I flew safely for 50 years. Wow. So you mentioned Ferrari. Wasn't didn't Roy Disney like his Ferraris? Wasn't he a Ferrari fan too? Did you guys have a race or no? Yeah. No, Walt was. Uh, are you talking about Walt? No, Roy. Wasn't Roy big on Ferraris? Oh well, yeah. Well, Roy liked cars like oh, yeah. Jaguars. You know, just you know, speed cars. You know, nothing, nothing to do with it. His, uh, his, all his uh, time was in golf in Scotland. Uh, oh really? He was a big golfer. Yeah. I didn't know that. I, well, I know young Roy. I'm talking about young Roy, not oh, older okay. Roy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was, a, he was a real cool guy. Very, very nice. Always a nice man. So what kind of, uh, what do you think you, that you learned from working for Walt himself? Learning from Walt is pay attention to the people who really, really have good, clear ideas. Please listen to them and use your smarts to try to learn as much as possible about what you don't know about what that person wants you to do. And you will surprise yourself by finding out how much of information on your own you will go learn about something that has never been done. That's the big thing. Is, is all these things Walt did have never been done before. So he had a unique collection of people around him and we all had the same response. Oh, we can't wait to get going on something that's never been done. 
because there's nothing to research. You don't waste any time. You just jump in and start. And so, to, so to work for Walt Disney for the 12 years I, I worked with him, um, those are the main lessons that I learned. And then I saw other people doing the same thing. You know, I just didn't win in Las Vegas, you know, with his treasure island. He, he had the same attitudes, Walt. Spielberg, same guy, same kind of uh, attitude. Like, well, if it doesn't work, well, just find another way to do it. You know, no order giving. Just uh, we got ideas. Let's go chase these ideas around. So that's a big. That was a big thrill. I'm so tickled pink that uh, that I thought car design sucked after working in Detroit for two weeks, and I thought the biggest blessing in my life was that Disney fired me so I could go do something that was really interesting. So is there something about you know, like you said earlier? There's not a lot of people, not a lot of legends left. You're you're one of the last few, which means you're also one of the last yeah. few who knew Walt. Yeah, the, yeah, the last two, yeah, the last two people is Exitencio. Uh, you know, he wrote all the pirate song stuff and everything, and the Grim Grinning Ghost for Haunted Mansion. Uh, but X just finds it so hard to get out of the house, get in a wheelchair, and have his daughter drive him around. It's uh, you know, I haven't seen him in quite a while, and it's been five over five years since Blaine Gibson was able to go do anything. You know, I suppose if I was 96, I'd, I'd probably want to sit in my convalescent home and have people feed me at night, and I don't have to do anything. But I find myself at age 83 being prevailed upon by uh, every kind of thing, whether it's Disney, whether it's fan clubs, friends. You know, I told you, you know, over 50 of these uh, requests where, you know, you have to perform or go do something. But that doesn't include the free dinners and the free parties and the free pool party. With the <laughs> Mad Hatter, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking down at the pool with the Mad Hatter from the uh, Mad Tea Party. <laughs> not a bad not a bad gig right there. Not, so a, not a bad gig. Yeah, that's pretty good. There's five other five quick questions that we can ask you real quick if you wouldn't mind answering. Okay. It's, uh, it's a tiki round. Uh, your favorite snack in Disneyland? My favorite snack at Disneyland, the Gertini. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> your favorite attraction? Fire engine. <laughs> your favorite Disney character? Pluto. Your favorite Disney movie? I think it's Fantasia. I don't see anything that ever tops Fantasia in, to my way of thinking. And your favorite Disney park memory? Favorite Disney Park memory is watching the look on Walt's face when he is showing off his new monorail to the vice president of the whole United States. <laughs> just, awesome. just the look on his face said it all. Ah, the picture's worth a thousand words. Yeah. Oh, you bet. You bet. Thank you. <laughs> we love it. Thank okay. you very much. Okay. We appreciate it. See you guys. That's going to do it for this week. Be sure to let us know what you thought of the show. You can comment in the notes over at EnchantedTikiTalk.com. You can email us at podcast at EnchantedTikiTalk.com. And you can leave us a message on the Tiki Talk hotline, which is 256-4MY-TIKI. That's 256-469-8454. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Check out our store at Redbubble.com. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at Tiki Talk Podcast. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please take the time to rate us on iTunes. And you can find me on Twitter at One Minute Disney Dream. That's 1-M-I-N Disney Dream and mouseworldvacations.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Daily, and online at DoleWhipDaily.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm at Norman Bate. That's N-O-R-M-N-B, the number eight and the letter S. Thanks for listening this week. For Sean and Keith and our special guest, Bob Gurr, I'm Alan, and this has been Enchanted Tiki Talk. Aloha.
Uh oh. We lose him? I think so. Yeah. Oh no. He told him to cut it short and he hung up. <laughs> it's your fault, Sean. Yeah. Oh, man, Good I'm job. Sorry, Here we go. Call him back. Don't say that ever. Don't say that again. <laughs> there we go. Oh, isn't smartphones fun? <laughs> <laughs> They're not very smart, if you ask me. He told him to cut it short, and he hung up. <laughs> <laughs> it's your know. fault, Sean. Yeah, oh, man, good I'm job. Sorry.